to be hanging out with the Peninsula. Man, this is sweet. Uh, Corey, thanks so much for, for, for asking me up and, and enforcing it on my calendar. Come on. <laughs> very diligent, very persuasive. Uh, and it's also so such good news to hear just all the great stuff, all the faith that's going on up here. Praise God, praise God. And this year too, uh, to just have the, the excitement of looking at Jesus squarely in the Gospel of John, which is which is what we've begun the year with, and we'll probably take it through a good bit of the year. And we are we're in John chapter one. My name is is Ed Anton. Uh, so some of you are newer here, praise God that you are, because it's usually a little bit of a miracle that every single person that is here, um, but uh, we're ministers on the kind of the south side of our church, and we've got five regions to the Hampton Roads Church, this being one of them, and we're all kind of going for it in the same way that you guys are, and now uh, we get to kind of cross-pollinate this morning a little bit. But my, my, my favorite, let's, let's just call it um, title, I don't know what you would call it, um, but maybe it's just a compliment, and if I could put it on my resume in a way that wouldn't be weird, I would do so. And that was being told as, as we left the peninsula a couple years ago, that you were our favorite black preacher. Oh, man, how sweet is that? That's high praise. morning on the pages of John. Now, before we, before we like get, get deep into the Bible, there's a phenomenon that nobody has missed. And, and it's the idea that so many people today, well, at some point, I think they've soured on the idea of just strictly secular science, materialism, reasoning is what's going to eventually bring you to a place of transcendent cognition and deliverance, right? Because at the end of the day, if that is what you espouse, just pure materialism, then the best thing that you are is a happy accident of some molecular collisions, coming out of a primordial soup and going back to nothing. And at the end of the day, your life has no meaning. But there's something that everybody begins to realize at some point, that aching, that hollowness, that screams to the idea that there is something that transcends all of this. There's something that seems to be tugging away at it. But rather than kind of run right after traditional religion, most, most folks that probably that I talked to today, now say, I'm spiritual, just not religious. Because on the one hand, they don't want the kind of the emptiness and the empty void of mere reasoning. And on the other hand, they don't want the dogmas or the strictness and the confining, creativity-sucking uh, traditions of religion either. But here's the cool part with Jesus. With Jesus, you get something that's not just neither of those, not just something in between those, Something that abolishes those. Something that astounds anyone looking for either of these things that has to, in either place, abandon this or abandon that. Because when you encounter Jesus, all bets are off. Oh, 
can you hand me that remote control, please? Or you can just click it from there. <laughs> I feel like you play a little part in this, maybe. Uh, sermon! <laughs> Look at that, I can see it on the back wall. So again, as I mentioned, uh, this would have been a good slide earlier when I was talking about John. So pretend this was up earlier. Uh, whoops. Alright, the title of my sermon today is Enter Jesus. Because it's going to be on these pages where Jesus enters. Already we've read in the prologue of John, in chapter 1, that Jesus is nothing less than God himself. And sometimes I like to think, as I look at Jesus on the pages of Scripture, that, isn't this cool? I am being able to appreciate God through this beautiful, intimate portrait of Jesus. But... John chapter 1 doesn't just give us that. John chapter 1 tells us that he is in fact, as he walks onto the stage of the gospel, he is in fact nothing less than the fullness of God himself. That's, that's no small thing, that he is the fullness of God himself. This is, this is light piercing into darkness. This is God's reclamation project. And he comes not in, in some sort of a different way. He comes fully God, but yet in a humbled approach. But still, nonetheless, if you could kind of look under the hood, it would blow back your hair. If you had hair, it would blow back your hair. <laughs> where, where you would end up with this amazing recognition that this guy, Jesus, as he comes here, is none other than Yahweh himself. The one who spoke galaxies into existence. The one who grieved the fall of mankind, and yet decided to grab some righteousness in the midst of a flood of, of purging to see if maybe there's another chance. To protect that seed, bring it down to Egypt so that it could flourish and not be corrupted by the nations that surrounded it. And then there in Egypt, when it was ready to bring his people back into the place where they would begin to fulfill their destiny with a mighty hand, this Yahweh, this Jesus, is able to, with the fist of God, it says in Exodus, be able to bring on such terrors and horrors to the only superpower on earth that he takes that superpower and brings it to its knees. Come on, with all of its chariots, with all of its grandeur, with all of its public works, and even with its godlike Pharaoh, humble before this Jesus that appears on these pages. And then, in delivering his people, opens the sea, lets them go across, and when the superpower decides that they're not going to humble out to God anymore, and they pursue his precious possession, his people, he closes that sea up right on them again, and brings that superpower back into humility yet again. I love even what it, what, what it says about Jesus in Job. It says, God stretches the northern sky over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. So as we see this rabbi, born into Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, living in Nazareth, backwater town, 
poorest family in that backwater town because they could only offer a pigeon uh, at, at his consecration. And not only that, born of a family of disgrace, right? It's a backwater town, but I bet they can count. And they, when they count with Joseph and Mary and they realize it doesn't add up to nine months, that is, there's disgrace. There are only a few dozen families in this place. So that disgrace hangs on them and hangs on him as he grows up. And yet, if we could see, he's the one who stretches the northern sky over empty space, hangs the earth on nothing. He wraps the rain in thick clouds, clouds that don't burst with weight. He covers the face of the moon, shrouding it with clouds, created the horizon when he separated the waters, set the boundaries between day and night. The foundations of heaven tremble. They shudder at his rebuke. By his power, the sea grew calm. His spirit made the beautiful heavens. And these are just, this is what it says in Job 26, these are just the beginnings of all that he does. Merely a whisper of his power. Who then can comprehend the thunder of his power? And so when Jesus walks on the scene, man, it's, how many of you have ever kind of watched a, a Virginia Tech football game? How many have been at a Virginia Tech football game? Right. God willing, maybe if my, my son goes there in the, in the fall, I'll go to a Virginia Tech football game. But what is one of the coolest traditions in all of college football? Enter Son of Man. No, enter Sandman. And we now have the entering of Jesus right here on the pages of Scripture. But when you just read it at times, you don't get, Jesus doesn't get the due that he deserves. Right? I mean, if, if it's a movie or some other type of production, there's like multimedia stuff that could go on. And, you know, what if, what if Jesus had that? What if, like, as he walks on the scene and we're reading this, that we could just kind of cue, enter Sandman. Let's try that. All right, we're in John chapter 1, verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning round, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. <laughs> so they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Is this one working too? You hear this? It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John had said, whoop, let me put it further away from my eyes. Uh, Simon Peter's brother was one of the two who had heard what John had said and who followed Jesus. 
The first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. I love this. Jesus comes on the scene and it says in, in, in the prologue in John 1 that he is also full of glory. What is glory? Glory is this idea of gravitas, of weightiness, of significance, of grandeur, of honor. And as he comes onto the scene, something with that much weight, something that comes into a situation like this, when that glory comes in, it rearranges all the furniture. It changes everything. And I love how he even comes on and is like, Peter, 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 we're going to have to, you know what, Cephas, we're going to have to do something about that. Simon, Simon, what, Simon, what in the world? No, 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 that's not who you're going to be. Sure, you have a foot-shaped mouth. Sure, things freely flow from, from that orifice of your mouth. But nonetheless, you shall be called the rock. Who, who does that, right? Who walks into a room like that? What teacher when you were growing up or what minister that you may have encountered ever could come in and command that kind of respect? Let's appreciate who's coming onto the pages here. This is Yahweh. This is Jesus. This changes everything. This is light into darkness. This is a backdrop of a fallen world going to hell literally in a handbasket and having no hope and all of a sudden more hope than they could begin to imagine pierces the darkness. And here he comes to begin his reclamation project, his renovation project. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. No small phrase. We'll talk about that in just one minute. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Humana, humana, humana. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree, before Philip even called you. Then Nathanael declared, uh, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Now, people speculate, nobody really knows what Jesus said or understood about what was going on with Nathanael under that fig tree. But a fig tree was a place of deep contemplation through the scriptures. It was a place, perhaps, where he was contemplating magnificently great things through the scriptures or even through meditations on the scriptures. And somehow or another, Jesus, in the fullness of all of his power, was able to nail that exactly. So much so that Nathaniel goes from the biggest skeptic that we have to immediately turning on a dime to saying some of the most profound things about Jesus. 
Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And so we have the calling of the very first Christians. Calling of the first disciples. By the way, if you're like me, I remember kind of dabbling with God a bit and hearing some people talk about themselves as disciples. And I had just moved from the Northeast, uh, the great state of New Jersey. Yes, exactly. Greatest state in the nation. Right. So anyway, to Texas. Yeah. But in Texas, I figured, these Christian folks down here, they, they're crazy. Like, they're, they're like way out there compared to, you know, us kind of, you know, half-stepping up in Jersey, right? Come on, don't, don't make anybody look bad. You know, we, we still got our stuff that we do in Jersey, if you know what I mean. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more. But down in Texas, like, I don't know, they're all after. I guess they got nothing else to do down there, so they do Jesus stuff. I mean, this was my mindset, but I heard them using the term disciple, and, and as they did, I could kind of mix with them and not ever have my, my heart convicted. Why? Because I was like a Jersey Christian, whereas they were disciples of Jesus, and I didn't have to be that because I had my own standard of what it was, and I remember the first time one of those Texas Christians sat down with this Jersey Texas disciples sat down with this Jersey Christian. The very first passage that we looked at absolutely blew up my whole excuse-making toolbox. And I had to throw the whole thing out. Oh, stink! Because the, the scriptures clearly link, especially in Acts 11, that a disciple's a Christian, a Christian's a disciple. You could try to make a whole bunch of other cases, but there's no difference. And I was like, ah! Oh. I remember saying, I'm dead. I'm dead wrong, and I'm dead. And the, the fellow was looking at me like, we just looked at one scripture. I was like, I know. What must I do to be saved? And it really was. It was only about 10 days or so from there that, uh, that I was not only repentant, like radically, I mean radically, radically repentant, praise God, because uh, there's a lot to, to handle at that point. But also then baptized into Christ. And then from then on, man, oh man, just beautiful new life in Christ. And amen. God, God calls us. He makes a difference. But as he calls us, there's this kind of initial come and see. But then ultimately, as you come, you will see even greater things. And I like the way that John structures even this story of the first disciples, first Christians, now kind of linking up with their really God-given calling, their God-given purpose. And, and the way that he structures it is it begins with Jesus saying, come and see. But it ends with, and then you're going to see even greater things. And those are my only two points today. Come and see, but when you do, you're going to see even greater things. Oops. So, on this idea of, of, of come and see, isn't it interesting that in some cases, whether he's saying come and see, or kind of a same phrase, 
that, that he uses here of follow me, that on, on this page, as we look at what he says to Philip, he just looks at him and, and just has those two words for him, follow me. In the uh, Gospels, when he calls Matthew, you've got all, again, if you have a red letter Bible, you've got all this kind of black letters, and then right in the middle of it are just two words in red to Matthew. And what are they? Follow me. And that's it. Now, a lot of people form a crowd around Jesus throughout the Gospels. And today, a lot of people form a crowd around Jesus. He's a compelling figure. He's pretty spectacular. If, if Jews, who never, ever could imagine that God could have flesh, could come to him in thousands, then there must have been something about his character that was so far beyond reproach. So contagious, so compelling, that drew these crowds to him. But Jesus doesn't want crowds. He wants Christians. He doesn't want fans. He wants followers. He doesn't want dabblers. He wants disciples. And even here, he is not content as he takes these fellows along to just let them hang on the fringe like the crowd. And for him to say these two words, follow me, which are equated to come and see, that word follow in the original language uh, has, a, has a heading in a, a fairly popular dictionary called the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. And I, I, I didn't know what I would be getting into, but I looked up this word follow, it's, it's akalatheo, and there are 11 pages just on that word. Why? Because it's not just follow like, hey, uh, follow me on Twitter, please. Or, you know, Hampton Roads has a kind of a, a page on Facebook. If you're not following it, why, why don't you follow that? No, 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 no. That wouldn't even been close to the first century concept of what it meant to hear Jesus stop you in your tracks and say, follow me. As a matter of fact, the, the very means by which a master called students or a rabbi called his disciples in the first century was through this one word. And it was such a technical word, such a word pregnant in meaning that you really didn't have to say much more than that because you knew, you knew because everybody knew that if you were called to follow, then immediately what happens is that right away you are going to, if you decide to, you are going to absolutely rearrange your life under the sub submission of this rabbi, of this master. Like, that's, that's immediate. Secondly, you are then going to, in this rearranging, stick as close to him as possible to imitate him in every way possible. There are some fun stories of of uh, older rabbis that were, you know, kind of afflicted with osteoporosis and they're kind of bent over. And as they would walk around teaching their disciples, they, these young men who are just, you know, kind of early in their walk uh, and, and also early in life are likewise kind of, you know, walking around just, just like the rabbi. They have no osteoporosis, but they just wanted to experience the point of view, the, the, the everything of life from their master. That's how intent they were on following. But it's not just that. Then you need to learn all of that rabbi's teachings if you're answering the call Akalatheo. Not learn them so well that you could be quizzed on them, but learn them so well that you could teach others. There's a big difference, by the way. If I were to, if I were to say to you right now, 
Yeah, by the way, um, there'll probably be a, a five-question quiz, which there is, uh, at the end of this sermon. You think, all right, I better, I better get on this. But what if I were to say to you, oh, and, and next week, three of you will take this lesson and teach it to the other regions of the church. Right, suddenly then, you're like, ah, oh, okay, let me, let me get this together. Right, to learn it so well you can teach it. That is what is implicit, not just implicit, but, but absolutely integral to what it meant to really follow. And then the last part is, not just learn so much you can teach it, but then spread it. Spread it everywhere you could. And we begin to see that even in these early fellows right here. Right, I, I, love, I love when, um, when uh, who is it here? Philip uh, comes up to, to uh, Nathaniel. And, and of course, he's right away spreading, spreading the news about Jesus. But he's like, we have found it. And he, he kind of has like this slightly theological ability here to say that it's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He's the one that Moses wrote about. Right? It seems like he's got a little bit of background knowledge here. And it's scary, I'm sure, to, to evangelize and scary to tell someone else about Jesus. And his very first attempt, and the very first attempt we have in the Bible of someone really getting deep about sharing Jesus is not met with, hallelujah, it is so good to hear the good news from you. Did you know I was praying to hear that good news from you today? This is so terrific. Wouldn't that be nice if that ever happened to any of us? But instead, it's met with skepticism. Nazareth, come on, you're joking, right? Nazareth, that's, that's garbage town. That's a dumpster fire of a village. And you think something's coming out of that? What in the world? And, and I, I love it. So Philip is like, oh, oh, what do I do? What do I do? Hey, I'll imitate the, 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 the teacher. Because what did Jesus say earlier? Uh, uh, come and see? Oh, okay. It worked. Amen. <laughs> come and see. Come and see. Hey, I think for any of us, you know, you get stuck. It's like, come and see. Check it out. You know what? It will bear up under your searching. It will bear up under your inquisition marvelously. The more that you want to come and see Jesus or even really the, the body of Christ, where it's made up of true disciples. So anyway, full submission, incredible imitation, learning so well you can teach it, and then spreading his stuff everywhere that it goes. But it's got to be on his terms. And as, as you decide to follow, if you're here wondering, should I follow Jesus? Know that you don't get to do this on your own terms. Oh, and by the way, I'm sorry, there's one last piece to this that would, would help us, I think, easily to understand this. And I know years ago we studied this at one point. But if there's a word that is synonymous, that would immediately, a word that's so filled with technical meaning, a word that would immediately elicit what is in view, what is expected of you, a word just as similar as Jesus then saying, follow, and realizing, oh, can I do that? I know everything it's going to cost, everything it's going to require. That word would be today, if you were going to walk through Patrick Henry Mall, and there was a fellow in a military uniform there, and if he looked at you and said to you, Coleman, enlist. Wow. Coleman would know in a split second everything that was required, wouldn't he? Yeah. Why? Because it's a technical word imbued with a ton of meaning that everybody already understands. Same thing with follow. And, and to say that we're a follower of Christ, and, and again, you know, Everybody says enlist without any apology, right? Oh, uh, and it's going to be on our terms. And Colby like, yeah, well, I heard that I can kind of request 
like a duty station. Yeah, wink, wink, yeah, you can request it. <laughs> but you're going where we send you. Well, that's fine, but you know, I've been kind of toying with this like paleo diet. It's really been doing some good things for my complexion and kind of stoked about just how much energy I have. You're gonna eat what we give you. Well, that's fine. I'm, I'm kind of used to, you know, just coming out of college and having, you know, two, three months off. Yeah, maybe, you know, think of it as a sabbatical where I could kind of pursue other interests. It might even help, you know, in, in, in the way that I serve in the military. No. <laughs> no. You're going to be in a submarine, and you're going to be underwater, and you're not coming home for eight months. So enjoy whatever free time you have on that, because that's the way that it's going down. Right? So, but, I mean, those are, those are typically... We're really the expectations. And nobody says, oh, how dare you? They say, where do I sign? If that could be the case for a world institution, how much more so for Yahweh, for light coming into your darkness, for the very reclamation project of your soul? And it, it is interesting because, does this thing shift while you're up there? No, I started here. <laughs> Has nobody ever fixed this and all this stuff? Anyway, uh, when you really do align yourself with this following of Christ, then you're basically saying to him, on your terms. You can't say, on my terms. And, and by the way, he's going to bring it, and he's going to be rigorous, and he's going to be a drill sergeant. But you know what? Through that rigor, you're going to finally know the absolute beauty and fullness of the potential of your soul. Right. It'll finally come into full bloom. And when you finally align with Akalatheo, when you align with not just come and see, but also to follow, when that finally happens, oh my goodness, the enthusiasm, the thrill of it. I, I remember I, I kind of had a, what I thought was a pretty important career at the time. And I was in senior management at, at Coca-Cola, and I couldn't keep my mouth shut. And I knew that it was a dumb move, because I wanted to kind of continue to be the golden boy in the corporate corridor. And to suddenly be this Jesus freak is not going to actually help my cause that I was hand curating to help me advance up the next few rungs of the ladder. But it was almost like, Jesus. I was like, oh, Jesus came out of my mouth again. Ah, but why? I'm just so excited. So I read this today. I shared this today. I mean, it was just everything that I wanted to talk about. And why? Because then we finally know the alignment of our heart's deepest cry with God's deepest purpose for your life. Without it, we're like a fish out of water. Sure, the, the, the fish may be flapping around for a little bit, and there might be a puddle in the pavement after you kind of bring them up out of the water, but that fish is not having a happy time there. And darkness is not having a happy time either on the earth. And God comes. God comes to finally take the fish and put it back where it was always meant to be. Where it could then thrive and flourish rather than flap and flounder. When we follow, we, we thrive. There was, it's the only life we were meant to live. And why is it that there might be just oppressive sadness and emptiness that's within us? 
Because we're meant to be a fish in water. Yeah. We're not meant to be on the pavement. And if you are not yet in Christ to this degree, not in some way that you make it up, but in this degree. As a matter of fact, as, as we kind of continue to look at, at this passage, there's something interesting in this passage that, you know, it says here that when Jesus said this, that it was about four o'clock in the afternoon. I think it says it somewhere, doesn't it? I don't know where I'm at now. I don't have my glasses on. I've never had them on. It's a pride issue. But one day, I'm going to humble out and I'll find stuff even when I'm in the middle of a, a sermon. Uh, but, but no, but why, why do I even bring up this idea that it's, it's four o'clock? Well, because it means that what we're reading is not a myth. What we're reading is not a legend. And what we're reading is not fiction. Why? Because anyone who has studied ancient literature knows that no piece of, of ancient fiction or myth or legend ever had such detail to it. You don't read that, that Odysseus went up to the Oracle of Adelphi at 3.45 in the afternoon. Nothing says things like that. Once upon a time, in the day, Odysseus would, would, would climb to discuss the future with the Oracle. But, but it never has this kind of detail. And, and I love what C.S. Lewis writes about this. There are only two possible views, then, of the Gospel accounts. Again, as we come and see, you, you're seeing it through the Gospel accounts. You're seeing it through what has been recorded. And are you seeing legend? Are you seeing myth? Are you seeing fiction? Or are you seeing truth as it really laid, laid down? Well, C.S. Lewis says, well, there's only two possible views. Either this is reporting as close to the facts as one reporting on Samuel Johnson's life, which was a famous biography in his day, or else some unknown writer in the second century without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic, narrative fiction. If these things didn't happen, the writer must have accomplished this, or else it's nothing but a fraud. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned how to read. Wow. So, again, what C.S. Lewis was saying is that this is a genre that didn't exist. And for people to claim that with this level, with this level of realism, that it's suddenly some sort of a fable, you have not learned how to read ancient literature. Or if you have, and you're still claiming that, then you're being intellectually dishonest based on the full genre of what we're able to study at the time. Which means that for us, then you've got to either deal with it as the Word of God or dismiss it completely. But you can't have it in between. And God forbid, if you ever read through it and begin to say, wow, I like that. That speaks to my soul. That's a truism. Yes, children, obey your parents in everything. Brilliant, insightful. Oh, and fathers, do not be harsh with them. Ah, well, that's, that's out of touch, that's out of date, that's primitive. Certainly that isn't meant to be in there. 
Right? If we ever start to pick and choose, saying that's primitive, that's outdated, that's applicable, that's useful, I'll take some of this, column A, but no column B. If we do that, and that's how we read the Bible, well then we are not coming and seeing. We are coming and filtering. And we're not actually understanding the exhilaration of full self-sacrifice submission to the very purpose that was always meant to be your life, but instead, you are creating a Jesus of your own making. And even more frighteningly, you're creating a Jesus that is nothing more than a projection of you. Based on that handpicking of what you do. I don't need that. I'm I'm enough of a mess under the mastery of Jesus. God forbid I'm also master at the same time. Pray for my family if that even happens for a day. My goodness. But if you really want to know the exhilaration, the life transformation, the light into darkness, everything changes phenomenon of not only Jesus, but you with Jesus, then come and see without filtering, without filtering what it is to be a Christian, without filtering what it means to follow, without filtering what what it is that is regarded as truth in these scriptures, and you will come away as everyone else who has done so, transformed and transcendent and ready to, my second point, see even greater things. I love how he says that to Nathaniel. Now, now Nathaniel, whatever was going on there with him was, was a deep contemplation. And because Jesus in a minute will tell this story that had to do with Jacob, you remember the story of Jacob's ladder? And it's in, it's in um, Genesis, what, 28, I think. Uh, it's Jacob's ladder, and, and there are these angels going up and down, and Jacob has this dream of this ladder, and he thinks this is an amazing place, it's the place of God, and he, and he sets up a pillar there. But here's why I bring that up, because John brings it up in a minute, but because of what he says to Nathaniel. Maybe Nathaniel is contemplating something about Jacob, something about Israel. Now, in the Aramaic, when Jesus would have said this to Nathanael, he would have said to him, here is one of Israel who is without deceit. In Aramaic, that would basically be, here is Israel with the Jacob taken out. Because that's what deceit means there. So here is one who sees, one who sees great things. Israel, without the deceit that has taken down Jacob. And perhaps that was maybe the very thing Nathaniel was contemplating. He was trying to see God. He was trying to see God and overcome even his own prejudices, his own deceit, his own filters, to really see God. And suddenly, here comes Jesus speaking into his very soul. How astounding is that? Telling him all about himself. You know, as we often joke, killing me softly with his song, telling my whole life with his words. One time, one time. (laughs) 
idea of a, of a stair to heaven, however, is not a good translation. It, it really, what is discussed of as this, this connection between heaven and earth, and as Jesus says, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending. And in the vision in Genesis 28, it was ascending and descending on what would be like a causeway. It would be something that would move troops from, from one landmass to another. Why troops? Well, the heavenly hosts, the heavenly armies, are, are, these, are these angels that are, that are moving about, and it's an awesome scene. Angels are not the cute little cherubim that you see on people's Pinterest boards. They are so frightening that you fall like a dead man if you're even before one of them. And, and there's this vast host of these armies of God that are moving up and back. And, and Jacob, Israel, begins to appreciate all of this. He sees, he sees God that when we begin to follow Jesus, we begin to see even more deeply. We begin to appreciate even more fully. What is this great connection between heaven and earth? Jesus says, it's not that ladder. It's not that causeway. It's me. It's the Son of Man. When you have a chance, go read Daniel 7 about the Son of Man. And the astounding idea of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. And the, the power that is ascribed to Him and all that He does. Well, all of that, as we walk with Christ begins to be the stuff that gives us goosebumps as we study Him, as we discuss Him, as we have fellowship with one another, and as we live it out. As we live it out, we see even greater things. It's not just the idea that, oh, I've surrendered, and now I see greater things, but when you life it out. This is a year of life to the full. Don't let this be a year of contemplation to the full, but a year of life to the full, that as we walk with Him, then we experience even greater things. Astounding. You know, even, even right now, I, I left the uh, service down on the south side, and, and there was a, a couple that, that Deb and I were able to really just pray about and help, and they were neighbors of ours. They had three different couples all in our neighborhood over time reach to them and, and really help to get through to them. And, and, and then for, for, for them to finally have that breakthrough and, and to be in the room when it happens, to be in the room where the cosmic light bulb goes off over their head and they recognize, Jesus is Lord, what have I been holding back for? I'm ready to make the leap. And they do, they make the leap of faith. They give their lives to him. They repent radically of all that have been holding them back. All of their allegiances and affiliations and ambitions and agenda and other eight words are all rearranged, all for the sake of Jesus. And you're there, and you see it. Wow. What in the world was better than that? Yeah. To just be stumbling, bumbling through your workplace or neighborhood or school, and, and you'll give it the best shot of, hey, I've, I've kind of figured out some things with Jesus. Is that, is that something you'd be interested in knowing about? And then beginning to have those conversations with people, and then see people's lives change. And not just their lives, but if you're old enough, like Bill McDowell, you'll, you'll see not only their lives change, but their kids' lives change over time. And, and then to realize, oh my goodness, that little discussion has resulted in a disruption of generations. Wow! Who am I to have such significance in my life? Brothers and sisters, if you sit here and you feel like, but I'm not seeing even greater things, it's time now to grab somebody. 
Grab somebody before we get out of here. Just as they all grabbed one another. You know, after Jesus kind of had, had the first word, everybody else was helped to Jesus with someone else. Is someone helping you in your life right now with Jesus? It's not an individual sport. And by the way, if you want to have superpowers to see even greater things, do it with someone else. Do it with anyone else. If I'm sitting at my computer by myself, there are temptations that are awful. And it might even be that I might even like kind of click on something, God forbid. But, but it's not beyond the realm of possibility, sadly. But if old man Bill is sitting next to me, what are the chances? You know what the chances are? Zero. Zero. And, and I don't mean like zero out of 50. I'm talking, you're, so you're saying there's not a chance. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying there's not a chance. Same thing if, if I'm walking through Patrick Henry Mall and I'm thinking, oh, I, I really ought to be kind of really kind of living out a purpose for Christ here, and I do it by myself, well, maybe I sheepishly, you know, buy a pack of gum somewhere to see if I have a reason to talk to somebody. But again, if, if strapping, young, fit Bill is walking with me, well then, it's a totally different story, right? What, what is the effectiveness as, as we then walk? It's not twice as much. It's, it's thousands times as much. Easily so, every single time. So this year, this year, my goodness, let's see even greater things. Yeah. Let's reclaim our discipleship. Let's not just come and see, let's see even greater things. And, and as our, our, our final charge, our, our hashtag charge for the, for the day, grab a friend. Grab a friend who can help you go from fan to follower. Don't let go of one another until you can really say, I've enlisted in Christ. Thank you.